So, November the 30th, uh, 2014, lecture discussion number 179, and I am no longer sure that that's correct, that 179 number. Uh, hopefully it is, and if it's not, well, I'll correct it someday, uh, who knows when. But it's on the Book of Romans in any event, and we're somewhere in number 179 to 195, and I'm calling it 179 for today. And, and last week we plowed ahead. Uh, bulldozed would be a lot more accurate for what we did. Uh, we connected as many elements as we could and actually have this diagram on the board here. Again, I've, uh, it's beautifully and skillfully drawn by me, as you can see, as usual. And until we install the necessary technologies um, that include a video for our Internet cliffside system, I'm sticking to the story that this is artistically rendered. Which is true, it is. You've seen art, haven't you? What passes for art today, so the defense rests. Just, just consider everyone on the Internet that I am amazingly talented uh, when it comes to drawing diagrams. Anyway, I do believe that recently we've, um, we've made substantial progress. And there's still a whole lot to go. A whole lot to deal with. These three parables that were added, Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30, they're amazing, as you should expect. And when we bring Jeremiah 13 along with it, um, it just and then and then continue to the sheep and goats, which is what comes at the conclusion, as you know. Then it can be overwhelming to go and process all of these pieces. And there's I don't even have a third of the pieces on the board here, or even probably a tenth. But take some solace in the meantime that the distance we've traveled has been pretty good. It's not bad. So uh, where did we leave off? Well, we left off pretty much everywhere. We've got to address everything that is still on this board. There's nothing that has been eliminated. That's the way all these things are, as you know. And so we've got to go back and address them all. And um, nothing resolved, nothing gone far enough in any of these categories to let it rest. So... Probably we're going to back up just a little bit again today, think uh, the bulldozer, beep, 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 and then plow again into the pile and see if we can move it some more. Okay. Hopefully you remember, if you've been here or if you haven't, I'll repeat enough that you can catch up, that I have these three parables in Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. The parable of the evil slave that kills his fellow slaves, the uh, ten bridesmaids, five of whom are wicked, and the three slaves that are given talents, the third slave of that parable, obviously very wicked, and then the sheep and the goats uh, come after that. And we added in also Jeremiah 13, which was the uh, sash that is buried and the jars that were filled with wine and then dashed together. So, Hopefully, from you remember, those of you who have been here for a while, that the first slave in Matthew 24, 48, in the first parable, now let me repeat this too, just to keep everybody on board. If you try to read those three parables in Matthew, particularly the bridesmaids in the parable of the talent, uh, of the talents, if you try to read those and you separate them from the other two parables, and you separate them from the sheep and the goats, you'll have no idea what that parable is about. I hear sermon after sermon after sermon. Marie was here last week talking about a gentleman with a doctorate in theology, a very intelligent man, I know him, who tried to do a sermon on one of these parables without the other two. And it's hopeless. 
hopeless is pretty strong. It, it isn't very good. You just make too many mistakes and now you've uh, led people to thinking they can solve any or all of them independently. Can't be done. <coughs> so, with that, remember we have this first evil slave. And he says this profoundly wicked thing. He says, my master is delaying his com- coming. And then what he does, here he is over here uh, in this place here if you've uh, not watched my board. My master is delaying his coming. And after he says that, then he begins to go and kill his fellow slaves. He sees the delay of the return of God as an opportunity to destroy others. And then he careens or descends into his own insanity, his own madness. And that insanity or that drunkenness, as it is called here, is also in Jeremiah 13. The drunkenness, the madness is depicted in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 13, 13 through 14. And you hopefully already know that from last Sunday or the previous Sundays. And so today we're going to go back and take another look at this delaying aspect. And we're going to reflect on that. And I, I can't keep repeating this enough. The sheep and the goats are what? What are they? When, when does the sheep and the goats happen in the timeline of history? It's a post-tribulational event when Christ is separating the sheep and the goats. It's in the 75-day interval between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. There is a 75-day interval. It's called the blessing of the 1335th day. Blessed is he who gets to the end of the 75 days, or the 1335 days. The one that gets there, all that get there, are automatically entered into the millennial kingdom. They are all saved. So, The sheep and the goats post-tribulational event is subsequent to these three parables. That's important to know. So now you can begin to put the three parables into the correct position with regard to the timeline that they belong. And it is also that's important to know is that this thing that this man says, my master is delaying his coming. My master delaying his coming, coming, that is, again, a profoundly evil statement. It is exceedingly wicked. It is something that the Antichrist says, almost word for word. Or if you will, it is something that Satan and the Antichrist says, almost word for word. And when you have that piece together uh, with the other, with the sheep and the goat, um, now you're on your way to being, now's the time to start asking the whys. Of that statement. Why does this guy say what he says? What is meant by it? I'm going to start erasing things because I add things. So just wanted to start with the last week's lecture slightly in the forefront, and now I've got to get rid of it. Why did the evil slave start killing? What caused him to start killing? Again, clearly he saw when the master left, he watched him leave, didn't he? He knew he was leaving. How long did he wait before he started killing? He says, my master's delaying his return. What did he mean? What was he thinking originally? 
The guy's going to go and he's going to come right back. How long did he wait before he started killing? When did it occur to him, wait a minute, I've got a period of time where I can start killing my fellow slaves. Why is killing others the first response, essentially, uh, to Christ delaying his return? And now we're back into modernism. Uh, briefly, for those of you who have missed modernism, uh, well, I'll cover it here in a minute. But modernism or modernists see this departure or delay that Christ has. Right now, Christ is not physically present on earth. He is in the high priest, high priest, sorry, um, aspect of his three offices, the prophet, the high priest, and then the king. He's in the high priest period. But they see that departure or delay or the fact that he is not physically present, the modernists do, that God, that Christ is not God, that he's just merely a human being. They have a logical progression. As soon as Christ left, the modernists said that is evidence that Christ is not God. So why does Christ delay his return? What is Christ waiting for? Better put, who is he waiting for? Obviously, we have this delay for a bunch of reasons. First and foremost is the fact that many are saved by it. Many come in, or many come to Christ because of it. So, it is an opportunity for salvation. It is the gathering or the harvest. And we understand all of that. But the evil, they see the delay as something entirely different. But they also see the delay or the, the fact that Christ is not physically present on earth as an advantageous event. And this evil slave in this first parable obviously knows that Christ is going to leave. When I say leave, um, yeah, that's in a sense, because Christ is who? Christ is God, and God is what? Omnipresent. How does omnipresent leave? Omnipresence can't leave. So when I say the evil slave obviously knows that Christ will leave, leave is uh, got to be defined. And he seizes this condition. Again, he sees it as an advantageous environment. And clearly there is a free will component at play here. So when I put what is, what is the aspect of the delay or the departure, one of the first things I have to do is identify that there is some free will at, on the table. Free will surfaces. The evil slave knows he can be evil for the length of the delay. For a time. He's got time to be evil. And he intends to be evil for that entire time. And keep in mind that the wicked slave is suddenly caught at the end of the time. He's not really sure how long the time is because he is suddenly captured or surprised that Christ has come. And when Christ comes, he immediately does what to the evil slave? He cuts him in two. And again, an antichrist position. All of that is that I just did. So Christ, omniscient God, he knows all things, yet he departs, and he departs knowing that evil will rise up. So why doesn't he just stay and end it? Why does he allow this time, if you want to use the word allow? Well, that time, as I've said many 
many times, that's a joke, uh, allowed for me. I'm pretty happy about it. I want as much. It took a long time for me to show up here, so I'm grateful for that time. And now I have little tiny babies running everywhere. It's maddening. I don't know what to do with them all. I can hardly keep track of all the dividend checks that I'm going to get. Okay, I get none of it. But they they may not know that yet. But I have little grandkids, so the time is pretty cool. That's why God departs, and and we've covered that quite a bit, and there's more reasons than, than just that. But I'm focusing on the evil slave's uh, side of things. He knows that God will depart. And so you have to ask, how does he know that? What Did he get caught by surprise? Oh, wow, God departed. Well, you could make that case. But evil men know in their hearts things. Let me ask this question. Do evil men know why they are evil? And I submit that they do. And that, by the way, is why the modernism modernism movement so despises the doctrine of the deity of Christ. To repeat, modernists see the departure or the ascension, if you will, of Christ. This time period, they see this time as proof or evidence that Christ is not God. They say that God would not do this. And we'll have to deal with that in the weeks to come. It's important to understand how they think and why they think what they think. Modernism hates that Christ is God in their core. They scream at you if you find them and engage them. They... they are adamant that God is adding to himself humanity, perfect humanity, sinless humanity, is illogical. They'll tell you it is unscientific. There is no possibility that God could add humanity, they say. It's not something that could be done. It's absurd. It's useless. And it ought to be abandoned by the church and by Christians. And admittedly, they have been wildly successful in their objective of causing that. The contemporary church now has so diluted and perverted the truth of Christ's godhood as to render it, render it abandoned. The church has discarded it. Uh, and we all know that. And so the modernists, uh, however, having been so successful, they're still battling. They're assaulting us with uh, the media that they have in their control. And book after book after book reflects the modernist position and the most recent, as I brought up here a few weeks ago, authored by the no less renowned and highly respected, deep-thinking, uh, credentialed theologian, who I refuse to name Bill O'Reilly. He wrote, well, he didn't write it. He lent his name to a, a book, and he, his book is called Killing Jesus, as you know. Uh, uh, he is oblivious to the title being a contradiction as well as impossible. But nonetheless, Killing Jesus is a commercial success. It has sold millions of copies, much to my dismay. Once again, um, I am unsurprised by how willing people are to buy books that are profoundly blasphemous. And Killing Jesus 
not just a commercial success, but it is embraced by many professing believers. And what exactly they believe has not been entirely determined. Certainly they don't believe Christ is God incarnate, which I submit is a catastrophic decision that anyone could possibly make, John 8, 24. But again, I want you to see is the modernistic theology, the influence, because modernism, you see, long ago figured out that the incarnation, Christ being God himself in the flesh, they figured out that that was the foundation stone of Christianity. That's the pillar upon which the church stands. And if it could be dislodged, they reasoned, the church would collapse. And so they chipped away at it, in their media especially, in their writings as well. But now they have done it through the seminaries and pastor after pastor has no idea that a vast, I wouldn't say majority, but certainly a large amount of what is said from the pulpit today is not consistent with the Godhood of Christ. And they're right, the modernists are. If they could tear this down in any way, weaken it, the church is going to collapse. They're correct about that. If Christ is not God, many, many things of Scripture are voided, as you know. Salvation is vacated immediately. He has to be God for us to be saved. If there's any possibility, any element of him that is not God, then uh, salvation is null. And if salvation is nullified, the modernists then argue for universalism. And if universalism, and I'll cover universalism again from a different angle in a few weeks. If universalism is true, all that is really what it means is that there is none condemned. All are saved. That's the universalist uh, philosophy. And if that is true, then there is no judgment, right? How can all be saved if there is no judgment? Sin is then left unjudged. And therefore, if that's the case, then omnibenevolence is untrue. What is omnibenevolence, of course, is pure goodness. God is pure good, all good. That can't be true if he won't judge sin, for whatever reason. If all are saved and sin is not judged, that is unfair, unjust, and that is ungood. Does that make sense? I hope so. But for today, and we will revisit, as I said, modernistic concepts in the weeks to come, it is the winter solstice, after all, in our hemisphere. And so it's appropriate to discuss darkness and dark thinking. And we'll do it. But for today, what is especially applicable is that the modernists assert that there is no reason for the return. What's interesting to me is the evil slave says that the return of Christ is delayed. He never says it isn't going to happen. He says it's delayed, and that gives me an opportunity to start killing people. My pen is not working, and all the other pens are missing. Hang on, I have one to rip the I used to keep it in my pocket. But then Lori did something very unusual. She washed the clothes, yeah. And, of course, that necessitated the emptying of pens from my pocket. I've got one. Uh, what's that? I put it over there somewhere. 
I think, uh, who knows where I put it. Well, let me repeat. The modernist says there's no, re- there's no reason for the return of Christ. And I found it interesting that the evil slave in the first parable of these three parables from Matthew 24 to Matthew 25, the first slave doesn't say that my master is not coming. He says my master is delayed. And so I can start killing people because he's delayed. Um, And the modernist thinking is somewhat logical because what is the point of the departure or the return, or the delay, this current age that we're in, if Christ is not God? Let me repeat that. What is the point of the departure, or the return, or the delay, or the church age, if Christ is not God? If Christ is not our creator, owner, master, judge, If Christ is not the possessor of all things, the God Most High, the I Am, Genesis 14, 18 through 20, Exodus 3, 14, John 8, 24, right? If he's not those, if he is not God himself, then nothing in any of these parables that he has given us makes any sense at all. In fact, all of the parables of Christ are stripped of their value if Christ is not God. That's just how it is. He's got to be God in order for the parables to make sense. What is the purpose or the point of the Lord coming? Let's just deal with the first parable for a second. What is the purpose of Him coming in the first place and then departing and then returning if the Lord Master Owner is not God Himself? All of the parables of of Christ are dependent upon the person telling the parable, the person who is depicted in the parable, the master, the owner, the possessor, the Lord. All of his parables are dependent upon that person being God. It is the singular indispensable factor. And the modernists understand that. So, the coming of Christ The coming of the possessor of all things. What is that? What do we call it theologically? When God comes in the flesh as a human being, what do we call it? We call it the incarnation. Or we call it the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. God came to his creation, the incarnation. God coming, adding humanity. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and great is this mystery of God doing this. And to, to continue the thought, without the incarnation, which the modernists hate and despise, then I don't have God coming at all, do I? So where is he? When the modernist says that the incarnation is absurd, they are saying that God coming to his creation never happened. That it would be absurd for him to do so. So that is not God on the cross. That is not God uh, uh, relating these parables. That is just somebody. 
There is no coming of God. So the owner does not come. The owner does not give uh, the food. The owner does not give any oil. The owner does not give, or the Lord or the master does not give the talent of gold. When you do that, you empty all of those parables of its value. If it isn't God in the story doing what the story is saying is being done, then there's no value to the parable at all. There's no meaning to it. And hopefully you can see the goal of modernism. Without the incarnation, they know that the person of Christ is, is insignificant. Which is why they say the first thing the Christians need to do is get rid of Christ as God, this incarnation. Get rid of it. Abandon it. It's illogical. God can't do this and wouldn't do it. And knowing full well that it destroys everything that Christ says. Without the coming of Christ as God, there can be, by the way, if I don't have the first coming, let's just consider it logically, huh? If I don't have the first coming, if God never came, then what else did I get rid of? I got rid of the delay or the departure, didn't I? There's no reason to depart. And if if God didn't come in the first place, then there is certainly no return. And this is what they seek to erase. What would be the logic of having a departure and a return if you never had an initial coming by God? And if God never comes, then what, what's happening to free will? Because when he leaves, that evil person says, I have the opportunity to become evil. What is that? That is an evaluation of his circumstances and intentionality to be evil. Well, if I never have a coming and I don't have a departure, then the free will component of the departure delay is now removed. you understand that? I hope so. And all three of these parables in Matthew 24:45 through Matthew 25:30 are now gutted, and the modernist is happy. How could you possibly read any of these parables when you say that it isn't God Himself in the flesh telling them? The modernists are aware, by the way, of the consequences to, to Scripture if they're successful. And even uh, the inserting the, of the slightest doubt of God's or Christ's godliness into the church. And boy, they have far exceeded slightest doubt. The destruction of the doctrine of the deity of Christ is beyond the wildest dreams of this uh, group of people. And I've asked many times, what is their motive? I see what they're doing and I see and understand what they say. The question is, is why? Are they doing it? And I will submit to you, it is exactly the reason I'm bringing it up. It is exactly the motives of, if you want to call them the villains, it is exactly the motives of the villains in these three parables. It's the same as the parables. As soon as this delay or departure has come, come then this intent this limited free will aspect to kill their fellow slaves surfaces. So let's go ahead and put that on the board for you so you can see it. I'll put it out of order. The delay or the departure 
is a free will aspect, as I've said. What does the return have? Essentially, I'm asking, but not in a very good way. I'm asking, what is the purpose of the delay or the departure? It's many faceted, but one facet of it is that free will is demonstrated. It's limited. Can't say that enough. What do I mean by limited free will? Well, go out and, and defy gravity. You, you, could, you do not have the capacity to defy. Your free will is limited by... Um, God's ubiquitous laws. I say this a lot too, just as an aside, just to get off track for a second, a place to get some medicine. I have been intending to say it for the last few weeks, I just keep forgetting to do it. And I thought about it at um, Thanksgiving. I was talking to Christopher and I said, oh, I, I need to do that. And now I've remembered. There are, there's a large group of people that believe you can cast off your salvation whenever you want. Um, it's probably by far the largest group. It is the majority view in Christendom. And you've heard me say that many, many times you do not have the power to do that. Because if you did, then Christ essentially would have put a plan of salvation in place by which no one would be saved. What I mean by that is that if we had the ability to cast off our salvation at our will, then all of us would do it, and no one would be saved. And I always ask the question, if I cast off my salvation, do I have the will to take it back? And how many times can I do it? I need the number. Because if I knew what the number was, being a sinful human being, I would go right up to the number, wouldn't I? That's what, it's a, it's ridiculous logic, but it is nonetheless the prevalent logic. And remember, um, in the millennium, there's obvious sin still present. People perish because they refuse. There is Christ Himself, God in the flesh, Creator God, Lord God Almighty, on the throne. You can go and see Him, and people still reject Him. Still happens. It's by the way, one of the one of the uh, uh, purposes of the millennium. But let's imagine, for example, we all—I'm getting older by the minute. I am aging right before your eyes. You can see it on time-lapse photography now with me, and it is really fast. I had to go get a haircut. I finally had a day off. Granted, it was Friday, and so I thought I would be the only one getting a haircut. I was wrong about that as I usually am, but I got my five-minute haircut for 20 bucks. I was pretty happy. Um, I've completely lost what that has to do with what I'm talking about. It'll come to me in just a second. Hmm. I'm sitting in front of the haircut girl, and what do they do in haircut places? They have very bright environments. So I'm sitting in the chair, never having been in a bright environment like this that had such a fantastic mirror. Most of the mirrors that I own have been fabricated to make me look thinner. That's true, by the way. I only buy those. 
That's what I do. I look at the mirror. If I look good in it, then I know it's been adjusted. You can adjust the mirror. You know, it's not that difficult to make yourself look better. I only buy the mirrors that I approve of how my reflection looks. Well, this mirror, had not they had not consulted me when they installed it. Nor had they consulted me with the lighting. And the lighting was stark. I was in high definition. I don't see myself in high definition on purpose. If there's anything about me that was high definition, I only look at things that are blurry, that uh, portray my true uh, physical nature. But there I, I sat for almost ten minutes staring at myself. That was not good. And I began to imagine things, as I often do. What if I were 150 years old? And you know, by the way, don't you, if you read the uh, Internet media, that the scientific community is very, very poised to defeat aging. They're working hard at it. Now they think one of the keys to aging is to implant a microchip in you. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. I have to, I have to get people to um, accept a microchip at some point. If I told you that if you put this microchip in you, it will facilitate the defeat of aging, at least slow it down. How many people would line up to get the microchip? And I gotta, where would I put it? Of course, I've gotta implant the microchip. Where would I put it? Oh, I'd probably put it on your right hand, I guess. Well, what if you didn't have a right hand? Well, I'd have to put it someplace where it was accessible. Say maybe your forehead. But in any event, how, may, how easy will it get, how easy will it be if I can say that this has got a dual component to it? One, it will allow you to buy and sell. And two, it will help defeat the aging process. I've said for 20 years that the defeat of aging and the aspect of the mark of the beast are going to go hand in hand. But anyway, back to where I'm at. If I'm 150 years old, how sinful am I? I'm very sinful now. What if I'm 550 years old? How sinful am I getting? Obviously, the older I get, the more sinful I'm going to be. I'm decaying, right? So, if you could cast out off your salvation and get it back, and cast it off and get it back, cast it off, get it back, I obviously want to know what's the cutoff point where you will ever ask for it back. When will you be so evil as to where you cannot recover? you will become so reprobate. So if God put a system in place that allowed you to cast off your salvation whenever you wanted, and you lived to 500,000 years of age, you would never be saved. The plan would have no salvation aspect of uh, at all. In which case, what? Then we would blame God for having a plan of salvation by which no one is saved. And that would be bad, wouldn't it? That would be... Unjust, that would be wrong. That would be evil. And now you're back into the parables calling God evil. See how I hopefully brought that back. Okay, the salvation delay has a free will aspect. What does the return have to it? 
Why does he come back? We're trying to figure out why he left. And we see this limited free will aspect manifest when he's gone. And we see the mercy by waiting before he judges sin. So that allows salvation, a harvest, if you will. It allows for um, me and you, because God loves people. What does the return do? What's the purpose, primary purpose of the return? Why does he come back after he's been gone? Well, he does stuff. What's he do? He cuts people in two. What else does he do? He divides sheep from goats. He takes talents from one and gives to another. He shuts doors and won't open them. What is all of that? That's all judgment. So we begin to see. The delay departure element has a limited free will that is demonstrated. The heart of man is made obvious. By the way, so is the scourging of Christ. The heart of man is made obvious when the Romans tried to kill Christ with a whip. They hated him, right? He saved the ones that hated him. So now let's go in order here. What is the purpose of coming in the first place. Why did he even come? Now, again, the modernists said he never did come. And as soon as they say that, if you buy into that at all, if you start to say, okay, maybe you're right because you seem you have a degree from a university, therefore you must be intelligent. You can't possibly be, have a degree from a university and be an idiot, right? That's sarcasm for those of you on the Internet. But they say he didn't come in the first place. Well, if he didn't come in the first place, then obviously there's no departure, there's no return. So I've eliminated all judgment and I've eliminated free will. And that's what they say. There is no judgment, there's only universalism. Everybody's going to be saved, it's just a matter of time. And there is no free will because God has orchestrated everything and predestined everything. And you have no free will, that's why I ask. Does an evil person know why he's evil? Now, what is the purpose of the coming in the first place? Well, what happens? What's he do? He gives food. He gives gold. He gives oil. What's the key word? Give. So the purpose of the coming, the incarnation, is to give. That's the obvious question. What's he giving? So, the coming has this giving of food and oil and gold. I'm also going to tell you it has the deity, the master owner. He's always identified as the master, the owner, uh, the Lord. So it has a deity element or component. Christ is identifying himself as God who gives. And then he departs and delays. And you see this free will element rise up and he returns and the judgment is is at the return. So, now, God comes to man 
God departs, and man has a limited will, which he uses immediately to become evil, and then God returns, and man is assessed. And he is assessed based on food, oil, and gold, right? How did you do with the food? What did you, did you have any oil? What did you do with the gold? So giving, free will response to the giving, and then God's response to mankind's response to the gift. Does that make sense? Let me repeat it. God comes and he gives gold, oil, and food and says he's God. Man takes what he gives, notices that he leaves, notices he's not coming back very fast, and responds to the fact that he's not coming back, he's delayed, man responds with an evil intent. Some do not. Some, of course, invest the food in others, possess the oil, and invest the gold. I shouldn't say invest the food. They give the food. So I have this God coming as himself, identifying that he's God, and giving something. There's a free will response to the giving by man. Some are evil. Some are not. God then responds to the responses to his gift that he gave. Some he blesses and they enter into uh, the joy of the Lord. Others are cut in two. He shuts the door. He takes the talent away from them and casts them into darkness. So, what is God giving? God comes. Christ comes. And Christ... Scripture is obvious here, gives himself. So God is giving God. And man responds to God giving God. God's gift is himself. Again, nothing in the parable makes sense. Any of the parables, any parable, nothing in Scripture makes sense if God is not coming to give himself. And I've said in the past with respect to this issue that if Christ is not God, the entirety of Scripture is nonsensical. I can't say that enough. Christ must be God and he must be the gift. He must be the gifts, if you will, or nothing else will matter. And these three parables of Matthew make that overwhelmingly obvious. Okay? I hope I beat that in well enough. Let's go on to other stuff. And I know if you haven't been here, a lot of these things, I can't go back and read it all, but they're all there. When you, you can read them yourself. Matthew 24, 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. What does that mean? That means those are Christ's words. He's referring to the person who took the food that he was given when God came and said, I'm God, here is food, go feed your household. And blessed is that servant when Christ comes back, when he comes, he's going to find that servant feeding the people that he was assigned to feed, giving the food out. And the food, obviously, is some... Um, Aspect of Christ's redemptive work. 
the most comparable to that, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing, the most comparable words of Christ that, that most equate to Matthew 24, 46, I think, are, is going to be John uh, 21. Let me make sure I have it right, 15 through 17. That is where Peter is asked by Christ three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter gets it wrong the first two times. He answers incorrectly the first two times. Finally, he says, Christ, you are omniscient God, and Christ said, feed my lambs. So what that is, is if you love me, feed my lambs. That, by the way, is exactly... What he says here, if you love me, feed my lambs. And the blessed is the one who goes and feeds his lamb. But you cannot separate something from the feeding of the lambs. And that is the omniscience of Christ. And if Christ is omniscient, then who is he? He's God incarnate. And again, note in those verses, until Peter states definitively that Christ is omniscient God. You know all things. Christ continues to ask Peter if Peter loves him. You cannot love Christ and deny his deity in any way. If you have a sliver of something that is not pure God in Christ, in your position on Christ, any part of it, you do not love him. And you're not going to be able, you're not going to be utilized to feed anybody And those parables make that clear, as does this part with Peter. The certain implication is that without believing that Christ is always absolute God, it is not possible to feed his lambs. That is how these parables begin. The first parable has a feeding element, component to it, the feeding of food. Now next, I said last week, And I said it a little bit today, that in the first and the third parables, oops, the first and the third parables, it is very uh, apparent that the Antichrist, or Satan, is in those first and third parables. The parable of the wicked slave that goes out and kills people as soon as Christ leaves, um, that is, is thrilled at the delay, knows that he has time to kill. That is an antichrist characteristic. And the master is delaying, I will kill as many as I can, is the exact plan of the antichrist in Revelation. Um, in the third parable, Christ calls that, uh, let me get the spelling correct here. The word is, he calls that, the third slave who buries the talent. That's the long E, skleros. And it means terrible. I'm sorry, I have that completely wrong. Let me say it again. The first slave has the exact plan of the Antichrist. The third slave, 
says this about God. I knew you to be a hard man. And he uses the word skleros, which means terrible. Terrorizing. Someone who is a terror. So the third slave says to to God's face, to Christ's face, when he is brought before him in judgment, when Christ returns and, and the talent has been buried, hidden, he says to Christ, I knew you to be one who terrorizes. So that is Satan's exact lie. So again, you can see the Antichrist and Satan in both of these. Satan's exact lie is that God is terrorizing people. You see that all the time, by the way. In this uh, new movie coming out, uh, I don't know the name of it, I should, but it's Moses and Pharaoh, right? Okay, one of the primary uh, positions of that movie is that God is an idiot. He is a, he is a whining, capricious, arbitrary, terrorizing just killing people willy-nilly for no no apparent purpose. That is exactly what Satan says in the third parable to Christ. I know you to be a terror. You are terrible. It's Satan's exact lie from the beginning. He said that God is the source of all evil. And if God is the source of all evil, that eliminates free will. And if there is no free will, then there's no reason to have a return because there's no judgment. You cannot judge if there is no free will. So, we have found the Antichrist Satan in the first and the third parables without much effort. I I should, maybe a little effort, but we must assume then what? If the Antichrist and Satan is in the first of the three parables and in the third of the three parables, then what can we assume has to be the case? Got to be in the second. So, that's the wise bridesmaids and the evil wicked bridesmaids. Never make the mistake of not understanding. They're evil wicked in the first. They're evil wicked in the third. They're going to be evil wicked in the second. You just have to figure out why they're evil wicked. I got a letter from uh, Dr. Peter in Australia. I didn't bring it with me, but he, he, he was just, he just told me, he said, I knew those people were bad in that parable. Those bridesmaids, I knew they were wicked. Uh, and Sharon also said, yay, finally. Somebody starting to present the truth of that second parable. Well, I'm not the only one, obviously, and, um, and I'm, as I just pointed out, there's others out there that are listening that always knew. But I want you to know, somewhere in that second parable is Satan and the Antichrist, both are, are one. And since we can and have found the Antichrist and Satan in the first and third, you've got to look for him in the second, and both are there as well. And naturally, I believe that uh, they're pretty clear. As we just finished earlier today, uh, cementing in and, and establishing that this is about God, all of this is about God first coming and um, first coming and giving Himself. Let's read a couple of contrasts. Let's read um, Matthew 25, 8 through 9. 
And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No. Now, no is in italics. Lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. So go instead to those that sell. Well, isn't that interesting? I wonder who those are. So I'm looking for evil people. Go to those who sell and buy. We've covered this a little bit, but let's hit it again. Bunch of obvious question. Who sells oil? God gives it. They take it. If they have it. Do they have it? No. What do they have? God gives the oil. They reject it. But somehow I got somebody selling something. So who's selling this stuff? Whatever it is. And then who comes and buys it? Whatever it is. And what's the obvious question now? How much? What's the cost? God is constantly repeating. His The first thing was about what? The coming is about what? Giving. A gift. Himself. He's the gift. It's all about giving. What is this about, this verse? It's about selling and buying. You don't buy or sell something that is free, that's a gift. So who are those who sell? They're the opposite of God, aren't they? God constantly repeating His gift, His oil, is the only thing free. The only thing that is free, I say it all the time, I go to the gas station, I have a little ticket. If I get enough Cokes, then they give me a free Coke. You have earned a free reward, they say to me. Well, it's impossible to earn a free reward. I want to call the company. If it's free... I can't earn it. It was a contradiction. And it isn't free because I bought seven of them already and the price of the eighth one's included in the seventh. I know that and they know that. So why did they insult me, the little machine? The little machine, it's not anybody human that does it, it's the machine. You have earned, congratulations, you're a winner. You have earned a free reward. Theological blasphemy is what that is. And I tell them every time. So I have to move around from different gas stations because they cringe when I walk in the door. But God is constantly saying, and this is what I say to them, the only thing free is the grace of God, is the gift that God gives, His His self. That is the only thing free because it's Him and He's infinite holy God and there's no way an infinite holy God could be earned or purchased. The only way you could get an infinite holy God is it has to be given to you. He must give himself. But these are those that sell. That's a complete opposite. And so therefore there's a cost. What does the buyer have to buy whatever it was that these bridesmaids went back and bought if they in fact got something? Obviously, as I said, it didn't work in the lamp. But what did it cost? What does the buyer have that the seller wants? If I am correct and... If that is Satan selling it, what's he want? Yes, very well said. The buyer has only one thing that the seller has. 
the buyer wants the seller, I'm sorry, the seller, let me repeat it, I'm getting tired. The buyer has only one thing that the seller wants from the buyer. The seller wants the buyer dead. It's the sheep-goat context that comes next. It's the concluding portions of these parables. It's important to keep that at the forefront. The sheep are going to live. The goats are going to die. And as I was talking about the mark of the beast, Revelation 13, 16, 14, 11, the seller, the seller has a mark to sell. He's going to sell that mark. And the only thing he wants from you or from anybody who buys the mark, is death. And no one can buy anything without the seller's mark, Revelation 9.20. And no one who buys the mark will survive. All the goats will perish. Buy the mark or receive the free gift of God. And, and you see that in the communion, right? He gives himself the bread and the blood of life. You take that, you receive that, or you buy the mark of death with your death. That's the price. And lastly, for today, finally, are the favorite words every Sunday, the bankers. Who the bankers? Christ says to the wicked slave who hid the talent, and by the way, their wicked is paneros, which is ethically reprehensible. It's barbarous. It's unconscionable. It's repulsive. God calls what this third slave does uh, horrible, horrifying. To do what this third slave does and to say what this third slave says, uh, this is the one that hid what is free, what is life, and sells uh, what is a mark of death all the while calling God evil. Anyway, God says to him, why you are, you are a bar, you are barbarous and unconscionable and repulsive. And God says to him, why did you bury the gold if you thought it was useless? You could have given it to the bankers. And that's Chronister's paraphrase. And so these bankers come up. Who are the bankers? Clearly the third slave knew that the talent was life, that's why he buried it. He knew it was valuable, that's why he hid it. He knew the talent of gold was integral, it was interlaced with eternal life, and the third slave had to know that, and that, again, is why he buried it, and Christ makes that very clear in their inner exchange that they had. And the third slave was not going to let the bankers have it. He obviously knew he could have given it to the bankers. He instead buried it. Now, why didn't he give it to the bankers? By the way, I'll help you. He hates the bankers. Well, if he hates the bankers and he thought it was useless, the talent of gold, he would have given it to them. But he knew it wasn't useless and he knew that if he gave the talent to the bankers, what would happen to some of the bankers? They would be saved, and he hates the bankers, and he doesn't want anybody saved, and so he tried to kill them by hiding it, as well as hiding it from other people that he knew as well. And the bankers have long been my favorite part of this whole parable, or whole series of parables. God brings them into the conversation. So again, who are they? As you know, you can eliminate who they aren't. Jews were forbidden to charge interest to other Jews. 
So right off the bat, that's uh, that's Exodus 22:25. So right off the bat, we know that the bankers are not Jews. That's very helpful, because who's left? Raise your hand. Us. Okay. And that, by the way, tells me clearly that the person that he is talking to is a Jew. Therefore, the third slave is a Jew, much to the, to the dismay of those who insist the Antichrist is a Gentile. Sorry about your position. Once again, you're... Never mind. I digress. Time's short now. Why would Christ raise the element of bankers knowing that the third slave was not permitted to place the gold with Jewish bankers? See, why would he raise this element of bankers? And he knows that the third slave was not going to place the gold with Jewish bankers because obviously the third slave could have given the gold to Gentile bankers. So the bankers are Gentiles. And again, the Jew that had the talent of gold hid it because he wanted the Gentiles to die. Because the Jew, in this story, is a member, if not Satan in the Antichrist himself, he is a Pharisee, and he is one of the brood of vipers. He's a viper, and he loathed the Gentiles. He delighted in their doom. He believed fervently that there was no hope for Gentiles to be saved. Only Jews could be saved. That's what he taught every day of his life. And only Jews would be saved. And now, remember, that takes me right back to where? Takes me right back to Jeremiah 13. Right? 13.12, where the Jews mockingly, Israel mockingly says back to Christ, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? And I find it amazing that so many people believe in universalism like the modernists or that God wishes all that all perish. They believe that everyone is saved or everyone is condemned and there is no existence. That's the same thing. That's saying that God will not judge sin and therefore he is evil, or God produced a plan of salvation by which no one was going to be saved, so God is evil. Both of those say that God is evil, that his plan of salvation, some will say, is only given to a select few, and they're in that select few. But all slaves received a talent of gold here. Everybody got food. What happened is some people refused to feed others, and some people intentionally didn't take the oil, and we need to continue investigating. We've got to start, at least. What is God's definition of interest? He said, you could have given it to the banker, and you got interest. Well, once again, we know what interest is not. What is it not? It's not money. God doesn't need any money. He owns everything. He doesn't like money. He tells you that. Musicians... You come forward while I stall. That's appropriate. We won't say why. Does God want money as we define it, or interest as we define it? The answer is no, he does not. So what is interest? Well, you know the answer, don't you? How many of you know the answer? Oh, wow, i got more work to do.